Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene of the other, and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. And he, and he said, as he said, Come to the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. <clears throat> and Jesus said, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The word of the Lord. All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor, and uh, we are in the third week of a sermon series that we're calling Raised, Doubting the Resurrection. Um, before we dive in, I want to let you guys know, and it's not going to affect some of you, um, but uh, starting next week for the summer, we're going to be um, stopping our 8 a.m. service. So starting next week, we'll have our, our 9.30 and 11.15 services only, and that's because our SIUE students are getting out for the summer. Come on, guys. <laughs> Holy cow, you must be exhausted. Um, so our, our, uh, our students are getting out for the summer, and uh, graduation is next week. Congratulations to those of you who are graduating. Um, that's awesome. And so, uh, so because of that, a lot of our students are going to be going home for the summer. gives us a little bit more space. And so starting next week, we'll just have the um, 9.30 and 11.15. We'll kick the 8 a.m. back off again in the fall, but we'll be announcing that as we go. All right, so this morning... Uh, digging into our sermon series. Two weeks ago, we, um, we took a look at the fact that there's really two kinds of doubt. Um, one is a friend of faith, and one is honestly a cancer of faith. And, and, and this really is true of believers and unbelievers, right? This isn't just a, a, an issue for believers, but it is an issue for believers. Here's the thing, you guys. As believers, when we bury our doubt in ignorance, and we shroud it in fear, we empower it, and it becomes a cancer that eats away at our faith from the inside out. It's like the rust in the hull of the ship of our integrity, the, the hull of our integrity, and, and um, it slowly deteriorates the strength, right? Um, as unbelievers, when you take your doubt and you enshrine it, you stop questioning it you don't let it come into the light, it honestly becomes a cage for you, a cage of cynicism, 
a cage of skepticism that doesn't allow you to actually engage new ideas or question the way you think. It actually blocks you off from growth and development and ultimately will keep you from seeing clearly things that otherwise would be clear. Here's the thing. The healthy way to deal with doubt, the way that leads to life and not to death, is to, in fact, invite it out of the darkness into the light to see what questions it leads you to ask. Because those questions are worth answering. Those questions are worth investigating and digging into to ultimately find good answers, right? And last week, we actually spent some time looking at um, some of the evidence that actually challenges our doubts, right? So the first week, we, we challenged, I challenged you to doubt. Last week, I challenged you to consider some evidence that actually compels us to believe the gospel message. I get it, man. The, the gospel message is kind of crazy, right? At the heart of our message is the fact that um, a guy didn't stay dead, right? <laughs> That's hard to believe, unless it's true. It's crazy to believe it, unless it's true, and then it's crazy not to, because it changes everything. So last week, we took a look at some evidence that I believe is um, a persuasive foundation for actually understanding why believing the gospel is not just an issue of faith, but an issue of, of being rational and intelligent. And there are hard questions that come if you're going to reject faith, if you're going to say it didn't happen, um, you have some hard questions to answer. You have some things you have to explain, right? And so um, I wanted to, to throw those things out there to challenge us, right? Knowing that in the end, it's not just about the evidence. It's about your heart. Because nobody comes to this question in a neutral way. Nobody comes to this question um, unbiased. <laughs> we all have a dog in this fight, right? We all have something at stake here. You either want this stuff to be true or you don't. And this morning and next week, what I want to do is spend a little bit of time talking about why you should want this to be true, because it is really good news, um, in some cases, um, counterintuitively. So take a look at verses 16 through 20, because those are the verses we're going to be focusing on this morning. We've been jumping around this passage over the last couple of weeks, focusing on different sections. This morning, we're going to be focusing on, in the, on the end of it, the part that's called the Great Commission. Um, so I'm going to read verses 16 through 20 to focus us. Um, you can follow along. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee. Of course, that's where Jesus told them to go through uh, the women who were the first witnesses of the resurrection to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. All right, there's a few really important things going on in this passage, and honestly, all of them are incredibly good news, okay? The first is that Jesus kind of shows up and, and makes an interesting statement. <laughs> he says, hey, you guys, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. How's that for a nice little footnote, right? Inconsequential, just want you to know, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, I am king. And as king, I'm going to tell you what to do. And some of you are like, Steve, I thought you were going to tell us this was good news. I thought you were going to tell us that, that you know, this was, you were going to tell us why I wanted to believe this, right? Some of you, honestly, and we all have this in our heart, man, when my little girl... Um, my middle one, 
uh, was little, um, her favorite saying was, you are not the boss of me, right? There's nothing like a raging three-year-old looking at you saying, you are not the boss of me. And you're like, I think I am. <laughs> I think most of the time, right? But our hearts, man, that's that position our hearts take toward God. How is this good news? Next week. <laughs> Come back next week because we're going to be digging into how this actually is incredibly good news. So he starts off by saying, I'm king. I have authority, right? And not only that, I have a new and unique authority. All authority has been given to me. So this is a new kind of authority, something that was different from his pre-incarnate deity, the fact that he was God before he became man, right? He already had authority, but now there's a new kind of authority. Getting into that next week. Come back then. All right, then he goes on and says, all right, here's your marching orders. I'm your king, got authority. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to be disciples who make disciples. And then I want you to baptize those disciples. Be disciples who make disciples. Now, a disciple, very simply, is somebody who believes in Jesus. Somebody who really believes in Jesus. Some people will try to make a distinction between, well, there's, there's Christians and then there's disciples. Right? So you become a Christian, and then hopefully you go on to becoming a disciple. I think that's really an artificial distinction, to tell you the truth, um, because there's a huge difference between accepting facts and believing truth. You know what I'm saying? Like when you're a kid, you can have people tell you all day long that smoking causes cancer, right? You can even see it in your relatives, but that doesn't stop you from starting to smoke. Why? Because you really think you're the exception to the rule. You feel invincible. You know the facts. You don't believe them to be true. Not for you. If you did... You would know more smoke than you would, and I'm not, I'm not trying to condemn smoking, but I'm saying the addictive nature of giving yourself up, you know, we know what happens when you're smoking, a, you know. And so what I'm saying is, is the reason that happens is because we know the facts, but we don't believe it to be true. That happens in Christianity all the time. People know the facts of Christianity, but they don't necessarily believe it to be true. What I'm saying is that a disciple is somebody who actually believes, doesn't just know, but actually believes. Because when you believe Jesus actually rose from the dead... <laughs> It changes a few things. I mean, significantly changes a few things. When a guy was raised from the dead and says, hey, by the way, this is what life really is. This is how you're supposed to live. This is how you pursue joy. This is how you find freedom. You're like, yeah, I'll follow you. I'll submit myself to you. I will pattern my life after you because you have authority. And not just like boss authority, like the kind of authority of experience that says, I really know what life is about. I really know the purpose of life and the direction of life and what's going to free you. I really know. I have, I've lived the life. I died the death and I rose again, man. So he's telling us to be disciples. People who really believe and then walk in that faith. And, and that faith informs how we do all of life. It informs how we do relationships. It informs how we do our jobs. It, 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 it informs the way we handle our money. It informs what we do with our free time, right? It's not a restriction. It's a freedom to actually move into the fullness of life that God has promised, right? So, so He wants us to be disciples. And then He wants us to be disciples who make disciples. This is really good news. And when you start tasting it, you're going to want to share it with others. One of the things that I, I so love about being around new believers and they haven't, they haven't grown into that place where they no longer have unbelieving friends. They've never grown, they haven't grown into that place yet where it's kind of like, 
you know, oh yeah, moving to the knowledge instead of experiencing thing that so many Christians struggle with. We all do eventually. We know the truth, but we're not experiencing it as deeply or as powerfully. These guys are lit up, and what do they do, man? They just go back and tell everybody. Why? Because disciples make disciples. When you're lit up by this stuff and it's changing your life, it's good news, and you want others to taste it. You want others to see it, right? And so you help lead others to do the same. Faith in Jesus changes your life in powerful ways, right? So he's saying, be a disciple who makes disciples. And the sign of that discipleship is going to be baptism. So make disciples and then baptize them uh, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? So baptism, here's the thing, yes, I want you to catch. We're going to unpack baptism, and I want you to see that baptism points to, I think, really a lot of the heart reason why I would say you really should want to believe this, because it's incredible, the symbolism of what baptism actually means. Let's start, first of all, with what is baptism. Because honestly, if you don't think baptism is weird, you've been around Christians a long time. Because it's weird, right? You don't go join the Rotary Club, and they're like, yeah, you can join. By the way, here's a tank. We've got to dunk you first. You okay with that? You know, like, that's, that's just weird, right? Where else do you get dunked as an initiation, right? Like, okay, that's awesome. You're here. Now obey and get dunked. All right, so what's going on with that? Well, in the ancient world, baptism wasn't as foreign. It was actually much more familiar. It was a way of identifying with a leader or with a cause. And so if there was something big going on, a lot of times there would be somebody out leading the way, and, and somebody could come and be baptized to identify with that leader or with that movement. The word baptizo, the, the, well, the Greek word baptizo means to immerse. So our, our English word baptism means to immerse. And the idea behind that was that somebody was immersed into an identity, into a cause, into a purpose. And so like when John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, was out baptizing, it was called the baptism of repentance. What people were being baptized into was identifying with his message, that there's a Messiah coming, a Savior coming, and we need to prepare our hearts for that. So what Jesus did is He took this, this thing that was already kind of happening, and He infused it with new meaning. He didn't invent baptism, but He gave it its real purpose. He said, all right, I'm going to have you baptize disciples. Now think about this, you guys. It's like He's saying, hey, you guys, remember. Remember, remember where I was, right? He's standing on, 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 the, on the mount, right, with these guys. First time they've seen him since he's been resurrected. He's like, you guys remember where I was yesterday? Kind of in the tomb, remember that? Kind of dead, remember that? And where am I now? Standing here, alive, right? I was in death, and, and now I'm alive. You remember Friday when I died? You remember when I was hanging on the cross and lost almost every ounce of blood from my body, when my, my body was mangled by whips, I was shredded, I was crucified, I was deformed. Do you remember that? Here's what I want you to know. I did that for you. I did that for you. I actually died in your place for your sin. Because God is a righteous judge, right? In fact, He's the measure of all that is right and holy in the world and in creation. And and as the righteous judge, He hates sin because sin robs Him of glory and it robs creation of joy. Sin is the bending of what is good into something that is bad. He hates it. 
And as a result, He must judge it. And He must destroy it. A holy, righteous anger towards sin. (laughs) And you're a sinner. That's bad news, but here's the good news. I was your substitute. I died your death. I took your place. God punished me for your sin. And I died. But the awesome thing is, since I could pay for your sin and you couldn't, I came back to life. God was so satisfied with the payment that I didn't stay dead. I came back to life. And if you believe in me now, my death is your death. And my resurrection is your resurrection. If you believe in me now, you are forgiven. You are made new. Right? And that's what baptism is. It's a celebration that allows you to celebrate what God did for you and to announce to the world your identity, your identification with Him. Because what you're saying in baptism is, is I'm no longer who I was before I believed. I am now who He says I am because I have believed, right? See, baptism symbolizes a spiritual reality. I want you to catch this. Baptism doesn't actually do anything for you. When you get baptized, you're not suddenly more holy. You're not suddenly sinless. You're, You're not... You know, like some people are like, <laughs> I had one lady, we were doing a baptism service, and she was like, I want you to baptize my son. I'm like, really? She goes, yeah, he needs it again. <laughs> okay, how many times? I don't know, four or five. See, baptism isn't like this fresh start. Baptism doesn't actually earn you anything. It's a celebration of what Christ has earned for you. Baptism is a celebration of the fact that you have forgiveness in Christ. And how complete is that forgiveness? Well, let me ask you something. How often did Jesus have to die? Once. How complete is the forgiveness? Absolute. He settled the sin debt once for all, right? Baptism is a one-time celebration in the life of a believer. Why one time? Because it celebrates the one-time death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It is symbolic in its meaning. It is a powerful experience, but it's symbolic in its meaning. It doesn't actually do anything for you. It celebrates the Savior who did, right? And when you're baptized, think about what happens. You, are, you go from, from standing in a life to being submerged, baptizo, immersed in death, right? Like if I hold you under the water long enough, you're going to die, okay? Comforting, I know. Um, I, I haven't done it yet, right? But here's the thing. I mean, it's, that is the realm of death, right? When you're down there and then we pull you back out coming to new life. And so it symbolizes the fact that you are no longer who you were before you believed. You were broken, full of shame, sinful, full of rebellion. You were covered in your cosmic treason before God. When you believed in Jesus, all of that was left on the cross. All of that was, was, was left in the tomb, right? Jesus fully paid for it. When you believed in Jesus, you were given a new record. You are raised to new life, right? All of who you were before you believed is dead and gone. You're now a new creation in Christ. You are covered in the very righteousness of Christ. So that symbolizes 
the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and it symbolizes your identification with it. The fact that you are saying, I identify with Jesus. I believe in Jesus. His death, His resurrection are my death and my resurrection. So what baptism reminds us of the price that Jesus paid that we might be forgiven. It declares to the world that we identify with Jesus, that we are, in fact, followers of Jesus. But here's the thing, you guys. Baptism is not just about what Jesus took away. Our sin, our shame, our guilt, our cosmic treason. It's not just about what He took away. It's about what He gives us in its place. Because baptism is actually a declaration of new identity. Baptism is not just about what He did to take away our sin. You're not just dunked. (laughs) You're dunked into a name. Did you notice that? Take a look at this verse, Matthew 28, 19. I'm going to put it on the screen. Therefore, as you are going, so as you're living life, that's kind of the thrust there, as you're moving through life, make disciples, right? You're a disciple, just be making disciples as you live life. Share your faith with others and talk to them and and, uh, love people in the love of Christ, right? And do this of all nations. So everywhere you go, whoever you're in contact with, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why in the name? Well, first of all, because it's an issue of identity. Your name is an identity. If I were to come up to you and I asked you, who are you? Which is a really weird question, unless you're in a philosophy class. You're more than likely going to respond with your name. Because that's one of the first things that we use to hang our identity on, right? Now, is your name your identity? No, no. But your identity infuses your name. But a name is powerful, right? And we all know that. We name things we love, right? What have you named? Your kids, hopefully, if you've had them. Your car. Anybody ever named a car? Yeah, why do you do that? It can't respond, right? It's not like Knight Rider where you can be like whistling and then the car pulls up, right? Hey, Betsy, come on. Why do you name your car? Because there's a sense in which you rely on it. There's a sense in which you delight in it. Often you name your first car. You don't often name your 20th. You know what I'm saying? Like it's something that is new and revolutionary and you have this intimate relationship with it. It's a piece that says, this is now part of, this is my freedom. This is, right? We name what we love. God renames us when we become believers in Christ. And baptism is a celebration of our new name. Now, notice what he says. You are actually baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Anybody see a grammatical problem here? I'm an English teacher, so I got to test you a little bit. All right, how many word name? Is that singular or plural? Singular. But how many names are listed? (laughs) Is Jesus bad at grammar? Is that what's going on here? Like, I just never passed that class. No, well, here's the thing, you guys. What we're getting is, is honestly a glimpse into what one, we call one of the mysteries of the Bible, which is the fact that God reveals He is a trinity. One God, three persons. Name is singular because there is only one God. One what? But made up of three who's, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, distinct, unique in their personality, but one in essence. Don't think about it too much. It'll hurt your head. But when we get baptized, we are baptized into our identification with this Trinitarian God. One God, three persons. And each person, in a sense, speaks to our new identity, right? It speaks to who we are. 
So let's talk about that. What does it mean to be baptized into the name of the Father? Well, when we're baptized into the name of the Father, we are immersed into our new identity as children of God, right? Children of God. Think about this, you guys. God the Father is often um, associated with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are often associated with different kinds of activities and different kinds of roles. They're equal in glory, equal in authority, equal in power, distinct in role and in personhood. God the Father is often seen as the one who is the sovereign God. He is the one who decrees all things. He is the ultimate authority, the ultimate king, the ultimate judge. So he is the one who decreed creation. Now, creation, we find out from John chapter 1, that creation actually took place through the Word. The Word became the agency. John talks about the Word, and that's his metaphorical or poetic way of talking about Jesus. Jesus is actually the, the, the force through which creation occurred, right? And we look in Genesis 1, and that was actually worked out through the agency of the Spirit, because it's the Spirit of God who hovers over the face of the waters, right, during the act of creation. So we see all three persons of the Trinity involved, but it is God the Father who decrees, God the Father who, who ultimately leads out, right? It is His job to ultimately um, bless and judge. It is His job to measure whether something is beautiful or repugnant, worthy of praise or worthy of condemnation, worthy of being imitated or worthy of being destroyed. We often think in our worst moments of God the Father as a terrifying judge, and that is not necessarily an inappropriate thing to do. The writer of Hebrews tells us it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God because the living God is an all-consuming fire. And He purifies what is pure and He destroys what is not. See, we're talking about a God who is sovereign and powerful and majestic and holy and the measure of all that is good. And we know that we do not have the right to come into His presence. We all know that. That's that nagging sense of shame and guilt you have in the back of your head, that nagging sense that tells you, I don't measure up. That nagging sense that says, if everything in my heart were exposed right now, I'd kind of be embarrassed. If everything in my heart were exposed right now, I think I'd shrivel up and possibly die, right? Because we know that there are things within us that should never see the light. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But because Jesus was judged for us, because Jesus took our condemnation, because He died in our place, catch this, you guys, God, the sovereign God, is now our Father. As a believer, you are now His child. You are His son. You are His daughter. See, Jesus, during His ministry, spoke of God as His Father. When He would pray, He would, he would pray, Abba. Abba was a, a word that was used in that culture that was a very familiar term for a father. Uh, it was like dad, you know? So He's like calling God of the universe, dad, right? The religious people of his day um, condemned him for that, despised him for it, because the religious people of his day thought of God as being so holy, you know, just the opposite of us today. We, we tend to make everything pop culture, even God, 
right? You end up with Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts and stuff like that, where we just take the sovereign, omnipotent things, the holy things of God, and, and put them on a pop level. Well, they were the exact opposite. They, they, they considered God so holy, they wouldn't even say his name. His name, Yahweh, right? In the Old Testament, they would translate it, the Lord, because it was too holy to speak, right? And yet here's this guy, Jesus, who's, when he's praying, is calling God Abba, Dad. That level of familiarity was offensive to them. God is to be served. God is to be worshiped. God is to be reverenced. Who are you to claim that you have that level of intimacy with God? That you delight in him as a dad and he delights in you as a child. But see, that's exactly what Jesus was saying. He was saying, God is my Abba. He's not just my, 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 my God, but he's my dad. I love him and he loves me. He is the true father. And I am the true son. See, when we believe in Jesus, we are brought into that relationship. Everything that separated us from God is cleansed away by the work of Christ. And instead, we are given the gift of sonship. Um, We are actually made children of God. And sometimes we get a little hung up. We're like, why is it called sonship? Why are we called sons of God? Why isn't it sons and daughters of God? Again, it's cultural. During this period of time, um, sons had a special role in the family, especially firstborn sons. They got the lion's share of the inheritance. They received the honor of the family name. They ultimately took the mantle of of authority and dignity of the family. What you need to hear is that if you're a believer in Jesus, you are considered a firstborn son of God because you are covered in the very righteousness of Christ. It's an identity piece, right? You're part of the family. I'm his child, but I'm not alone in being his child. I am brought into a family of children. As a believer, I'm actually brought into this crazy thing called the church. And, and obviously, the church is not perfect. <laughs> it is incredibly broken, sometimes more broken than others. But it's because it's made up of all of these broken, sinful people who are forgiven, redeemed, and being made perfect, but they're not there yet. But that's still my family, and I kind of fit in. Because I'm broken, redeemed, and being made perfect, but not there yet, right? And so as a believer, I'm not alone. My identity anchors me in a community, in a people, right? It's kind of like when you go to uh, your family reunions. Sometimes you have nothing in common with your family. They may even annoy the snot out of you, right? But what you have in common is actually stronger than what makes you different right? Nobody else understands your crazy family like your cousins or your brothers or your sisters. You know what I'm saying? Nobody gets the inside jokes the same way you do. Nobody understands the, the hidden glances. Nobody, that's the thing because family, what, what bonds us together is stronger than what drives us apart. You and I may be incredibly different. We may have different political views. We may have different social views. We may do different things for hobbies. We may root for different kinds of teams. Uh, you may not root for a team at all, right? Uh, but here's the thing, what we have in common is stronger than what makes us apart. Because we have the same Abba. We've both been redeemed by Christ as believers, and we both come to the same God and call Him Dad. (laughs) That's kind of a big deal, right? And so we've been introduced into a family. 
So my identity now is I am a child of God. I am part of a true community, a family, a spiritual family that all looks to God as Abba. And I'm growing in that family through the power of, of God, right? And ultimately, this speaks to one of the deepest heart questions that we have. A heart question that every single person asks. Am I loved? And am I lovable? Your heart never stops asking that. You know why? Because you were created by the God of love to experience the outpouring of His infinite love. Well, our sin has separated us from God. It didn't change your desires, but it did separate you from the source of that desire. It separated you from the absolute fulfillment of that desire. And so what you do now is you look to everything else to find out if you're loved. You, you look to your jobs, your entertainment, your relationships. You look to people. And so the question always remains because what you find with people is if you perform, then you're accepted. And so you're always asking, am I performing well enough? Am I pretty enough? Am I smart enough? Am I strong enough? Am I intelligent enough? But with God, what you find is that you are accepted because Christ is approved. You are infinitely, unconditionally, absolutely loved. You are invited to the table. When your heart grows cold to God, God's heart never grows cold to you. When your heart strays from God, God's affections never stray from you. What could your child do to ever lose your love? And you are a weak and broken parent. God's the perfect father. You can, you can never lose his love because it was earned with the very blood of his son, Christ. And when he looks at you, he sees you covered in Christ. You are loved more deeply, more profoundly than you could ever imagine. So when we talk about our identity, being baptized into God as Father, what we're talking about is being baptized into this sense in which God once again moves into that loving, leading, fostering role of Father in our lives. So we're baptized into the name of the Father. We are also baptized into the name of the Son. We are baptized into Jesus. And we've talked a little bit about what that means. It means that, that we are, first of all, identified with His death, burial, and resurrection, right? He died for me and He rose again for me. And when I believe in Him, I am immersed in Him. Everything that was wrong with me, He took away. He paid the price for. Everything that's right about Him was given to me as a gift, as grace, right? So when I'm baptized into Christ, my identity is rooted in Christ. I am actually covered with Christ, so that means I don't have to face death or judgment or rejection because He faced all of those things for me. But you know what's cool is not only did He take away your sin, but when He covered you with His righteousness, He made you co-heirs with Him. See, remember we talked about at the beginning, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me? There's a sense in which he has an inherited a mantle of authority. The throne of David, uh, if you want to go to the Old Testament, um, there's a sense in which he um, has performed as a man like no other man has ever performed. He actually obeyed in all the places where we and Adam didn't obey. He was faithful in all the ways we weren't faithful, right? He became the true man who is ultimately the steward of all creation. And his inheritance is all of creation, and we are co-heirs with Christ. It's like, I don't know. You guys read Harry Potter? Some of you? I haven't. Um, <laughs> but 
I just started, right? I got, I was, I was bored. I wasn't bored. I needed a distraction. That's really what happened. I'm like, I have to get my brain on something else. And I had a free copy of like the first book. And so I started reading it. And, um, and there's this scene where Harry Potter basically realizes that, that he didn't know who he was, right? He, 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 in a sense, um, finds out that, that his mom and his dad, um, were these wizards and all that sort of stuff. But here's the thing. He finds out they have this like huge, like he walks into this room at one point and he, and there's this huge pile of gold and silver and, and I don't know, wizardry things and stuff like that. And he's like, that's all yours. It's like, what? Like he had spent his life basically in an abusive situation where the people that he were with were telling him he was no good. He didn't measure up. He didn't own anything. He could never have anything. And to suddenly realize that he was in fact the possessor of tremendous wealth. Yes, we wake up to the reality that we are co-heirs with Christ and it revolutionizes our understanding of what is truly valuable. Why are you chasing trinkets? When you have a crown. Why are you pursuing ribbons? When you have eternal accolades. You know what I'm saying? Like what this means is that as co-heirs with Christ, um, we have an honor that is... Um, royal in its nature. We are equivalent, in a sense, to the firstborn son. The Bible calls us the brothers and sisters of Christ. We're brought into the family and are honored with an honor that we could never earn. Now, you think about this, you guys, because what this means is, is not only do we get what Christ got, but we get to become what Christ is. With, by being co-heirs with Christ, we also inherit the character of Christ. There's no greater gift. There's no greater gift. I mean, look at one single attribute. Jesus is called meek. Meek is not a word that we use a lot in our culture. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, oh, dude, that, that dude's meek, right? Whoa. Yeah. No, we don't even know what it means, right? It's like, you got, is, what does that mean? Is, is, does that mean weak? Is he passive? Is he like... You know what I'm saying? What is meekness? Meekness is a beautiful word. We've lost the meaning of this word. The word meek means having all the power you need, but only exercising the power required. Having all the power you need, but only exercising the power required. Jesus was meek, which meant that he was powerful and gentle. He was royal with authority, and he was a servant. He, he knew how to be lifted up without being puffed up. He knew how to be brought low without being destroyed. He had a humble confidence, a gentle strength. You guys, one of the things that when we're baptized into the name of Jesus, what that means is that in a sense, we are going to become like him. We're going to learn how to move into this, this, this gentle strength, humble confidence as royal servants, those who are, in fact, part of the family of God, those who have a claim to, to in a sense, the royal table, and yet freed in that royalty to become the servant of all. In the same way Jesus, on the last night of his earthly life, took the, the shoes, the sandals off of his disciples' feet and washed their feet, the job of the lowest servant. He wasn't humiliated by that. He was exalted in it. We are freed to royal service because we are freed to humble 
confidence. You guys, and this meets a very deep need of our heart. It meets the deep need for security. See, we all, in the same way that we were designed to have our love fulfilled in God and that got bent by sin and we're looking for love in all the wrong places, to quote a very famous song, right? Now, we, 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 used to, we were designed to find our security in our relationship with God. And now we find it in all the wrong things. I am secure. Why? Because you like me. I am secure because I finally got this car. I am secure because I have these possessions or I have this accolade or I have this wealth or I have this. I am secure and, and, and none of them last and none of them are real and none of them actually provide the kind of security that you're genuinely looking for. But in Christ we do. You know why? Because in Christ what we find is that we have nothing to prove and no one to impress. Do you get how radically freeing that is? I have been baptized into Christ. I am co-heirs with Christ. I bear the name of Christ. He approves of me. He guarantees my future. I don't need to impress you. I'm free to love you. I, I have nothing to prove, no one to impress. Because I am secure because of the work of Christ. God not only takes away my sin, He gives me the fulfillment of my deepest needs. But I'm also baptized into the name of the Spirit. Baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What does that mean to be baptized into the name of the Spirit? There's a lot of confusion about the Spirit. And that's not surprising because the Spirit um, honestly doesn't like to take center stage. And so you'll find some groups of Christians that um, would go to two extremes, right? You got some groups of Christians that want to pull the Holy Spirit, um, basically put them on center stage, right? He becomes the center of the show. It's like he's got power, he's got all that. Let's, let's just worship the Spirit. And, and then you got other Christians who honestly I think are afraid that the Spirit might actually show up. Right? They believe he exists, but they're terrified if he actually might show up. Why? Because he has power and he does weird things. And those things make me nervous, right? Well, here's the thing. Uh, the Spirit is a person, right? Not an it. Uh, that's even King James Version of the Bible actually translates it it, right? The Holy Spirit is an it. Um, because grammatically in the Greek, there's three genders and it is one of them and spirit. Anyway, the point, he's a person, but his job, his role, remember three, three persons, equal in Godhead, equal in authority, equal in majesty, but different in roles. The Spirit's role is to point to Jesus and to point to the Father. He is constantly redirecting the attention away from himself and to Jesus and to the Father. So I want you to catch this. He's not the silent partner. He's anything but silent. He's just not drawing attention to himself but He's present, drawing our attention to the glory, the beauty, the power of God, right? He is, He's the beauty of a sunset. That awe that sometimes grips your heart when you see something and you realize, I was created for something more than this. That, that sense of, of sensuk to a great... German word that means joy and longing, right? When you, you ever see a mountaintop and just have this like weird desire to go climb it, be there. And you know when you get there, there's nothing going to be anything there. You're just going to look at another mountaintop and feel the same thing. What is that yearning, that magnetic draw? It is the presence of the Spirit. He is the, the beauty of color. 
He is the transcendence of experience. He is the power of light and wind. He is movement. He is creativity. He is power. When we are being baptized into the name of the Spirit, we are celebrating the fact that we are being immersed in the new creation of the Spirit. In Genesis, the earliest chapters of the Bible, we find the Spirit hovering over the face of the waters, incubating creation, right? And Jesus said, after I leave, in other words, after I die and buried and rise again, I will send the helper, the paraclete, the spirit to you, and he will come indwell you and change you. He will recreate you. So we are baptized into the new creation. God, as a creative force, determined to recreate us, to change us, to free us. He has beauty, he has power, he has creativity, and he has also purpose and mission. So we celebrate in baptism that we are in fact given purpose. We all crave purpose in our lives. We're all busy people. You ever notice that? You ever ask, you generally ask people, how you doing? One of the first responses you get is busy. That, anybody feel busy in here? Sometimes you're like, hey, how's it going? Super busy, right? So we, we move on scales of busy to super busy to crazy busy to dead, right? And, and so that's kind of the spectrum of our lives a lot of times. Why are you so busy? What are you trying to accomplish? For real. What are you trying to accomplish? Well, dude, I got a job, man. I got to make money. That's awesome. Why are you working? What do you use your money? I got to go on vacation next summer, man. I got to save enough money for vacation. I got I to get my education. Why? So I can get my degree. Why? So I can get a job. Why? Why? What are you investing in right now that 100 years from now is going to make any difference? A hundred years from now, what is, is so consuming you right now that a hundred years from now is even going to be a blip on the meaning of meaning for anybody? See, we're driven by a need for purpose. We're driven by a need for productivity. We're driven by a need to be significant. But outside of the work of God, we have no ability to truly be significant. Right? And this is, we see this in literature and poetry all the time. Life is full of sound and fury signifying nothing. It is that revelation of despair that so many people have come to that outside of God, we're just leaves blowing in the wind, right? We're baptized into the Spirit. Catch this, you guys. Right now, we live in the overlap of the ages. That's what the resurrection tells us. We live in the overlap of the ages. There's an age that is ending, and that's the age of the first Adam. And there is an age that is coming, and that is the age of the last Adam. The first Adam failed, right? And we were all born into his lineage as failures, as sinners. The last Adam succeeded, Jesus. And he was the birth of a new age. And he says, I will come back and I will initiate that age. There is a kingdom coming. The Spirit gives us the ability to live for things that are eternal to pursue life and joy and purpose now, to enjoy the overflow of the presence of God now, but in so doing, never lose sight of the fact that there is a greater purpose, a greater movement, that there are things that genuinely last and are worth living for. There's no greater significance in life 
than to live in the eternal light of the gospel. To live for things that don't fade and aren't destroyed. You are given a new significance. So you guys catch this. When we celebrate baptism, we are celebrating what God has taken away through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Our sin, our guilt, our shame. But we also celebrate what he has given to us in the work of Christ. A new identity that meets the deepest needs of our heart and frees us in beautiful ways. As we close, I want to invite you to come back for our baptism celebration. We're going to be celebrating after our 11:15 service. It'll be at about 12:30. And I know for some of you that's going to be inconvenient, but I want you to come anyway, right? Do you go to a family birthday when it's inconvenient? Right? You know there's going to be a candle and a lot of cake and candles and why do you show up? To celebrate, right? You're marking an important moment of shared family culture. When we celebrate the faith of new believers, we are celebrating people that are born into our family. It strengthens our faith. It strengthens our family community and gives us joy. So come back, celebrate with us, you guys. If you're a believer, but you haven't been baptized, I'm going to give you a unique opportunity this morning to actually obey. See, when Jesus said, go out and make disciples, baptizing them, it's a command to me and other disciple makers to actually do this, but it's a command to you as well as a believer to be baptized. Your king has given you your marching orders. If you are a believer in Christ and you haven't been dunked, you have an opportunity in front of you today. Join us. Yeah, but Steve, man, really? Now? Yes, like you came here dry, you're going to go home wet, right? And we've thought it all through, you guys. We've got clothes for you, even the understuff, right? We've got clothes for you. We've got towels. We're going to take care of you. My makeup's going to run. I can't help you with that. But we can help you with the other stuff, okay? If you want to be baptized this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus and you haven't been dunked, I'm going to invite you to join us. There will be leaders by the door after the service. All you got to do is walk up to them and talk to them. They're going to ask you some questions and have a conversation with you. We want to make sure that you know the gospel, that you believe the gospel, that you're being baptized for the right reasons, okay? If anything checks, um, you're going to come back with one of three responses, essentially. Either no, because, hey, we need to talk about this. You know, there's some things that you don't understand or we want to clarify. Uh, maybe later, because maybe there's some things that... that um, we think that we need to invest into, disciple you a little bit and help you understand some things. Or yes, you're a believer. It's clear you haven't been baptized. Bam, let's get this thing done, right? And so join us. We're giving you a unique opportunity to be baptized with us this morning. So moving into a time of response, I'm going to put some questions on the screen, ask you to pray, do some business with God. Um, questions are these. Are you a believer in Jesus or just an acceptor of facts? There's a big difference. There's a big difference between accepting that Jesus lived, died, and rose again and believing in Jesus. There's a huge difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. If you're somebody who has known about Jesus, I want to invite you this morning to know Jesus, to trust Him, the risen Savior, to actually move into a relationship with Him instead of just having a cultural knowledge about Him makes all the difference. You guys, makes all the difference. It takes it from a religion to a relationship. It takes it from something you're doing to impress God to something you're resting in and delighting in because God is impressed in Jesus on your behalf. So I invite you, believe in Jesus this morning. Secondly, if you're a believer, have you been baptized in obedience to Jesus? Because it is an issue of obedience. Your king has given you your marching orders. 
And he says to you, if you are my disciple, you should be baptized. So if you haven't been baptized, have, why not? Let's, let's have a conversation about it at least. It uh, doesn't mean that it has to happen this morning, but let's at least get the conversation going. Thirdly, are you walking in the fullness of your new identity in Christ? One of the beautiful things about baptism is that it reminds all of us of the fullness of the gift of God. That as followers of Christ, whether it was two weeks ago, two months ago, two years ago, or 22 years ago, I am still a son. I am still a co-heir. And I still have a mission. And sometimes I need to be reminded of these things. Sometimes I need to be reawakened to the beauty and the wonder of the grace of these things. And there's something beautiful about baptism that helps reawaken our souls to the blessings we've been given in Christ. Are you walking in the fullness of your identity in Christ? You guys are going to move into a time of response. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to take our offering, and then we're going to share communion. Now, when we take our offering, this is a chance, as you guys know, for, for our members and regular attenders to give joyfully and sacrificially. Um, what we're doing is funding the work of the gospel um, through this local church to impact this community um, in the name of Christ, right? And so we're partnering together as the family to fund the work of the family. If you're a guest with us, um, we're really glad you're here. We would love if you would take your worship response card, fill it out, and drop it in the basket when it comes around. We'd love to know you were here. If you have prayer requests, drop those in there. We want to pray with you. Love to pray for you. Okay, I pray over those every week as well as the leadership team. Um, so drop those in when it comes around. If you're a first-time guest with us, please visit Connection Point. We have a gift for you. Um, we're not going to hunt you down. We're not going to track you. We're not weird like that. We just want to honor you, okay, for coming. And so visit Connection Point. If you have questions about baptism or really how to take the next step of faith, you're like you just want, you know, something stirred in you this morning and you'd like to talk to somebody how to take the next step of faith, there are leaders by the door who will be happy to pray with you and for you or, or, or to talk with you, okay? Let me pray for us. We'll go into a time of response. We'll share communion in a moment. Father, we thank you that you are um, such a great and gracious God, that you give us not only the beauty of a Savior, somebody who will deliver us from from the things that we can't deliver ourselves from, but you give us the beauty of actually recreating our identity, of giving us a new name. Father, I thank you that I am no longer Steve, the son of shame. That I am no longer Steve, the son of a broken home. That I am no longer Steve, the one who is desperately trying to prove himself that I am now Steve, the Son of God, co-heirs with Christ, empowered and transformed by the power of the Spirit. I thank you. That's all grace. I pray for my friends and I pray for myself. I pray for the believers that, that we would be reawakened to the beauty of our identity in Christ, how incredible this gift is. I pray for those who have not yet believed that you would be sparking within them deep desires, yearnings that only can be fulfilled in you. And then open the spiritual eyes of their hearts so that they can see clearly the invitation in front of them and respond in faith. Father, glorify yourself. We know that as you glorify yourself, man, we get the overflow of the joy. and We're just thankful. So make your name great.